tonight we're going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 30 to 46 and that's on page 284 of the Pew Bibles. And I have to say, when I was sent this passage, I thought, oh, we mustn't be starting the mission series this week. So I was like, who would preach a mission sermon from 1 Kings? But I'm very excited to see where Matt takes us tonight. And I'm going to read from verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariots and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rainstorm came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Thank you, Miriam. Yes, a bit of an odd place to do a mission talk, isn't it? Uh, you weren't the only one to say that to. But we are going to uh, explore this passage and see what it is that God has to say to us. Uh, we'll also explore other parts of the New Testament too. But please do have that one open. We're going to anchor here, so if you have that, keep it open. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig in. Our good and our gracious God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, you're a, the God of the nations, that you're calling people to yourself. And Father, we pray tonight, as we open up your word, as we see what it is that you're calling us to, to be mission-minded people who are praying. Father, work in us by your spirit, whether we're here or across the screen, and may my words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen.
So friends, as we've said a couple of times, we're beginning this series, Mission Minded, uh, because we want to be a church, and we've, if you come to Nawi regularly, we want to be a church that is about being on mission, right? Tesla, they're centered on making electric cars. At uh, Nawi, we want to be centered on Jesus and on Jesus' mission. Uh, that's what we are going to want to be about. Uh, you'd be familiar with our vision statement, to see lives transformed through Jesus to the glory of God. In all things that we do, we want to be about that, seeing God be glorified, uh, seeing lives transformed through Jesus. Right? And this is not just a, a Nawi thing. Right? This is a Jesus thing. Jesus, uh, right before he ascended into heaven, he gave the now very famous words in the Great Commission. The end of Matthew, he said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. As people of Jesus, we're called to be his disciples, and disciples make disciples. You know, bakers bake, teachers teach, disciples make disciples. And so that's what we want to be about, mission-minded people. And God, in his wisdom, we might think it's a bit silly, but he has chosen to partner with us. He has chosen to use us in his mission to this world. And so that's going to be our focus over the next uh, three weeks. Tonight, very appropriately, our focus is going to be prayer as our first uh, point of call. As John Piper helpfully says, God has given us prayer because Jesus has given us a mission. If we want to be about the work of the Lord in all things we do, in the physical and in the spiritual, we need to call on God who has all power and all authority and call on him because he loves people far more than we do ourselves. And we're calling on him to act and work in and through us. In a sense, that's what we're doing tonight. God sent us on a mission to make disciples, and so we pray. And as we go about this exploration, uh, we're going to use this story in 1 Kings as a bit of our anchor point, see how God used the prayers of Elijah, and then see how that worked in the New Testament and in our lives today. That's going to be our, our trajectory. Because prayer and mission, it's not a new thing. And it never gets outdated. So with that... Let's begin. We're in 1 Kings 18. So in the mission-minded life, we're firstly called to pray for God to be made known. Pray for God to be made known and the proclaimed among the people. That is a picture of what Elijah's mission was about. Proclaim God to Israelites and the nations around. Now in the context and the situation that's going on in 1 Kings 18, uh, just before in chapter 17, we see that the people have very much turned from God. Israel has, the, the neighbors haven't turned to God either. Uh, they're worshiping Baal, which is a foreign god, uh, not Yahweh. And the Israelite king Ahab has led them astray. The culture is very much against God. And so God has called, uh, told Elijah to pray for a drought, and the drought has happened for three and a half years. Now, drought is bad. And we know that we're Australian. Uh, droughts happen fairly often, and we know when droughts come, it's bushfires, it's water restriction, food might get a bit more expensive. Um, really, it's not ideal. In some ways, it's a bit of an inconvenience to us. More than that, but for an agrarian society, for Israelites back then, this is life and death. A drought is literally life and death. They're deciding at this point, 
Are we feeding the mother or the baby? Children or the grandparents? Drought devastates a society like that that has no trade or opportunity to produce otherwise. The people have turned from God, but God hasn't turned from the people. He hasn't forgotten them. And so he's come to the prophet, well, he's raised up the prophet Elijah and called him to issue a challenge to the king and a challenge to the people. And the challenge is basically, let's see who God is. And he calls them out. Are you going to follow Baal or are you going to follow the Lord? And the challenge is, okay, we're going to prepare a sacrifice, but we're not going to light it on fire. And whoever's God comes and brings fire, that will be the true God. And so... King Ahab and the people, they're like, yeah, great idea. Let's do that. Let's give it a go. Now, there's 450 prophets of Baal. 450. There is one Elijah. In verse 25 to 29, the Baal prophets go first and they pray. They pray to their God to bring the fire, but nothing. They pray again and again, but nothing. They pray again and they dance, they mutilate themselves for hours. No fire, no response, no one answers. And then it's Elijah's turn. Now, in, from where Miriam read, uh, we saw that Elijah, he builds an altar. He prepares the sacrifice and then he starts pouring water on it. Twelve jars, huge jars of water over the sacrifice. Now, for us, that might seem impressive. Like, wow, well, yeah, like water over wood, that's uh, obviously not going to burn very well. But Elijah is not Houdini preparing for a magic trick. Elijah is a worshipper preparing to pray. They're in a drought. Water is the most precious resource, the most costly thing he could pour out on that altar. For him, he's putting his livelihood, he's putting his reputation, his security on the line. The most profound act of worship has happened before a word of prayer. And then Elijah prays. And this is his prayer from verse 36. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. This is the prayer of mission. This is a prayer of God, make yourself known. Call people back to yourself. Elijah knows that that's all he can do. He can prepare an altar, he can be present, and he can pray. Only God can bring the fire. And then that's what God does. Verse 38, 39, the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, licked up the water in the trench. And all the people saw this and they fall prostrate. They cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They see that Yahweh is the Lord. Elijah builds and he prays. But God brings the fire. God is the one who reveals himself to the people. Elijah couldn't do that. But he still needed to pray. God invites him to pray. He calls him to pray. And so that's what he does. And as we step into the New Testament in our lives, we see we're on the same mission. Different time, different place, different method. We're not doing fire tricks like that um, or asking God to do that. 
but we're asking him to work in his powerful way. And in that time, there's a, there's a battle going on, a spiritual battle, and there's very much a spiritual battle that is going on in our lives. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, we're in a spiritual battle today. Sometimes it's hard to see, but we are. And one of the key strategies and tactics of the evil one is to blind the eyes, blind the hearts of people. Uh, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, The God of this age, which is another name for the devil, has blinded the mind of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the, go- that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When it comes to prayer, we're asking God, reveal yourself We're asking God, you've got all these heavenly resources, bring them out in the battle here. Open the hearts of people, reveal yourself to them. We pray, we build the altars, and God brings the fire. He opens the hearts. There's a beautiful story of that uh, with a woman named Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, Luke recounts the story. Paul and his team, they're on a missionary journey. And it says this, On the Sabbath day, they went outside the city gate down to the river, down to the river to pray. They expected to find a place to pray. They sat down and they began to speak to the women who were gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. She's a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. And there the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. God is in the business of opening up the hearts of people. He did that in the time of Elijah. He did that 2,000 years ago beside a river. He's doing that today. And as we continue, or look back, sorry, in the story of Acts in chapter 4, at the very beginning of the Jesus mission, the beginning of his gospel going out in the world, the first disciples, they begin with prayer. One story which highlights that so well is in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, they've healed the this uh, crippled man, they get chucked in jail and they're released from jail under the condition they won't speak about Jesus anymore. But the first thing they do when they return to their disciples, uh, to the other disciples, is to pray. The first thing that they do is prayer. Not some new strategy, not a program to do pray, prayer. They declare the sovereignty of God, the situation through the lens of scripture and they ask for boldness. That's a boldness to continue the mission they've been sent on. They are mission-minded, so they pray. Prayer is the first thing. Prayer is essential. Now, we live in a similar time. It's different, but it's the same call. Prayer, uh, so mission begins and is fueled with prayer. It begins and is fueled with prayer. Uh, In our life today, we want to be about the work of God, and so we let prayer fuel us. The Spirit direct us. I was chatting with Leambo, who preached the same topic at the 2 p.m. service with the Mandarin um, congregation this this afternoon. And he was saying in his words, along, along with his words here, that prayer is so essential. It's like a vacuum cleaner. I said, like a vacuum cleaner? That's a bit weird. He said, no, like a vacuum cleaner that's not plugged in. No matter how good the vacuum cleaner is, if you don't plug it in, it could be swish, bang, cyclone, diclops, dyson, I don't know, whatever it is. It's not, no power, useless. 
And it's the same with any one of our missionary or mission, missional, personal transformation endeavors. It cannot happen without God's hand. So we call out to God in prayer. He invites us to do his work, to call on him, to bring, open up the heavenly resources. And it also shows our dependence. We literally need it. We want people's hearts to be open. That's a spiritual work. When the kingdom of God to come, it's a spiritual work in and through us. Uh, God at work. And so we pray. In the words of a historian named Edwin Orr, uh, he's a Christian historian. He writes this. Whenever God is ready to do something new with his people, he always sets them to praying. History is silent about revival that doesn't begin with prayer. Any of revival, any awakening in an individual or in a city, prayer is present. God always sets his people to prayer. It's not an optional boost. It's the beginning and then the fuel of mission. And so that's the first part. We pray for God to be known and proclaimed. But then also, and a natural extension from that, we're praying for God's work to happen. We're, as we pray, we're praying for God's work in the world, in people, in individuals, and in the communities, in the world around us. And so that brings us back uh, to Elijah. We saw that happen, really, at the very end of that first scene, where the people fall, the Lord hears God, the Lord hears God. They're seeing God for who he is. But that's not quite, it is a climax, but it's not the ultimate climax of that story. Because after the fire of the Lord uh, falling and everyone praising, in verse 41, Elijah, he tells the king Ahab, okay, go down and celebrate because I hear the sound of a heavy rain. King Ahab goes down the mountain, but Elijah goes back up the mountain, up the mountain to pray. But this prayer will not be a public spectacle. It will be private prayer. It's a private prayer for the blessing of the city. The blessing in this case is for physical, their physical need being rain. Elijah is going to pray for rain to come. He's going to put his head between his knees and he prays for God's blessing. In verse 33 to 44, he prays again and again. He sends his servant out, look for rain, look for rain. He's praying, he's praying seven times and then the rain comes. Can you imagine the jubilation as God brings out his blessing on the city? Depression turned to joy, despair turned to hope, new life springing up in the city. This is the climactic moment of the Elijah story, the city being reborn. And in many ways, this is a small foreshadowing of Jesus' prayer, a small aspect of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come as God brings out his blessing on the people. Elijah, he's praying for God's blessing on the city in the form of rain. Jesus calls us to pray God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, which relates to physical things, but obviously also for spiritual things. When he instructs his people to pray, he says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we're mission-minded, when we're set on that course, we're asking, God, may your kingdom come. May your rule and reign come in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, in our city, in our homes, wherever it may be. Nick helpfully prayed through the Lord's Prayer. He prayed and asked what it looks like for us to pray for the kingdom of God coming. 
We're praying for the ways and the ethics and the values of God's kingdom to be made known and manifest in our communities. For people to see that Jesus is Lord, for the Holy Spirit to be at work. In many ways, our world is good and beautiful. In other ways, it is an absolute mess. There is horrific things, horrible things that go on in our individual life, in our neighborhood, across the world. And so we're praying, mission-minded people are praying for the kingdom of God to come. And one aspect of that prayer is specifically for people who are lost, for the people who don't know who Jesus is. Our prayer is that they will turn and find life in him for now and into eternity. And we see that clearly throughout Paul's writings in one particular instance in Romans chapter 10. He says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. That's his heart's desire. Now, obviously, it's not only for the Israelites. He's uh, preaching to the Gentiles. We see in almost all of his letters his joy that people have come to faith. And then he instructs us to pray uh, for us as well. Uh, He says to Timothy in extension, us, I urge you then, first of all, that all petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for everyone. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. For this is good and pleases God our Saviour. Why? Because he wants all people to be saved. All people to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is why Jesus came. The God of all compassion. The God who's calling people back to himself. Who will be the ultimate sacrifice. The way to the Father. Jesus comes to save those who are lost. To bring his kingdom. And so this is called to be our heart's desire too because it's God's desire. This is the heart of mission-minded people. Desires that new life would come in the individual and in the city and that God will bring it. Now sometimes the answer and result is immediate. Sometimes it's a long labor. It's a long labor to pray for the lost. It can be a long labor to ask for the kingdom to come. And that brings us back to Elijah's story. When Elijah went back up the mountain, he bent down and he prayed. But I want to read to you specifically what it says here again. This is from verse 42. Elijah climbed back up the top of Carmel Mountain and he bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Now, when you read the Bible and you get a really strange detail, that's weird. Like, lean in. Like, they don't waste ink. God is saying something through his people here. Now, Elijah is obviously literally in a position of humility, complete humility before the Lord. But he's also in a position of labor. Like how some women labor as they give birth. Elijah is literally laboring in prayer. And so uh, he says to his servant, go look towards the sea. As Elijah prays, servant comes back, nothing there. Seven times, again and again and again. Seven being this image of completeness, fullness, continual. Also literally seven times. But on the seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Then the sky turned black with clouds and the heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm. Elijah prayed once for the fire, but he prayed seven times for the rain 
like a complete number, seven times for the rain. Tyler Stanton, who's a pastor and author, he's written a fantastic book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. You want to read a book on prayer? I'd recommend that one. It has changed the way I pray. I found it so, so helpful. But he says this, and when he's talking about what it looks like to pray for the lost. Prayer is slow and unglamorous and at sometimes requires labor pains. But prayer is also means to the joy of new life. Prayer can be slow and unglamorous. That was Elijah's prayer in that moment. Secret, unseen, unglamorous. And that is the prayer that we're told to imitate with the Lord Jesus and the authors of the New Testament. And so as Elijah prays on his knees, the New Testament metaphorically and physically calls us to pray on our knees. I want to point out two things of what it looks like for us as a church to be prayerful people, to be mission-minded people who are laboring in prayer. And the first is we're called to be devoted in prayer. In Colossians 4, uh, it says in verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Again, Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. That's it. Pray continually. It's being devoted to prayer. Now, this is not a prayer of intensity. This is a prayer of regularity. To be committed and then consistent in prayer. And that is what we're called to be. The second way that we labor as a church in prayer is that we partner in prayer together. Paul is huge on partnership throughout all these letters, all the time calling people to pray for him, to pray for others. It's continuous, right? Two examples, we'll stick with the Colossians and Thessalonians theme. He continues on in chapter 4, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. In 2 Thessalonians, he says in a very similar way, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not, for not everyone has faith. Paul knows mission is not a solo game. It's not just an individual effort. He's saying Colossians, Thessalonians, whichever church he's talking to, Norwegians, when you pray, you are contributing to the work of the mission. When the Corinthians pray for Paul when he's in Ephesus, they're praying for the work of God that's going on in Ephesus. When we pray for the mission work that's going on in North Africa, we are contributing to the work that's going on in Africa. Our prayers matter in that way. It's not a solo game. We're called to partner in prayer. So if that's our, the nature of prayer and the posture of prayer, as we're mission-minded people, uh, we need to remember to pray for those who are lost. So what does that look like? To continually pray for those who are lost. I'll tell you a story of a woman named Monica. Monica, she's from North Africa. She's a single mother. Uh, she has an only son. She prayed for him uh, every night when he was a little boy, teenager, into his adulthood, throughout his adulthood. But her son... Uh, didn't want to borrow of Jesus. Uh, he became a womanizer and a drunk uh, in his North African town. But he also was exceptionally bright, a great philosopher. And so he set his eyes on debunking Christianity uh, and his mother's faith. But Monica didn't give up praying. She prayed and she prayed year after year after year after year with no hope. Just hope in God. 
prayer that he would answer. Her son left to North Africa and went to Rome, known for its reverend debauchery. Monica continued to pray. And then her son heard the audible voice of God. And in that moment, in a Roman garden in the afternoon, he gave his life to Jesus. And he turned from debunking Christianity to becoming one of the greatest theologians of all time. His name was Augustine, one of the great church fathers of the fourth century. Quiet, devoted, private, laboring prayer. And in that time, God chose to answer. He chose to release his power. Our role is to pray. There's other roles about how we act, and we'll get to those in the next couple of weeks. But it's God is the one who brings the fire. And he's in his infinite wisdom and goodness, he releases it. But I also know that sometimes when we labor, uh, we see no results. I know there's two people that I can think of that I've been praying for consistently for over a decade, and I've seen nothing. But that doesn't mean that I stop praying. We continually keep praying. Because that is what God has called us to do. God says he has a heart for all people to be saved. He's inviting us to partner in prayer for him. So we lay our friends, our family at the feet of Jesus. We ask that he does his work. So sister or brother, keep going. Keep going in your prayer, in your labor as you pray. Maybe there's some person on your mind, a group of people. But also in this moment, think about a particular person. Imagine your week. The people that you come across, the people you socialize with, your family, who you work with, your acquaintances as you, as you breeze past them. As you see from God's perspective, who are the people that God has placed in your life specifically? Who is it that God is causing you, calling you to notice, to not overlook? Do you know them by name? What is their name? encourage you, if it's in this moment or later, write down those names. Write down the people. And then develop a rhythm and a practice of praying for them. Perhaps carry the name in your pocket, put it on your phone, put it on your bathroom mirror, on your computer, whatever it may be. Whatever is helpful to help continually remind you. One of the practices I've adopted recently is I have a yellow card and I've written 10 names on it, or 10 cards, and I pray for one each week. Now, some weeks I don't. Then I pick it up again and I keep praying. I'm not saying I'm amazing. I'm a I'm, I'm pretty poor prayer, to be honest. But I keep, try to keep going. And so as we have this endeavor, as you have this endeavor, as we have this endeavor, we're going to have to continually pray that we have faith, hope, and love. And pray for that consistency. Pray for that urgency and that heart that Jesus has for people, the compassion that he has to be our heart for them too. And pray specifically. Don't pray eloquently, but pray specifically. Pray and then you'll see and you can see how God answers those prayers. And we'll watch God do his work. But that's private prayer. But there's also laboring prayer in partnership. We are called to partner in prayer. And it could be us as an individual praying for a gospel worker overseas. But literally pray with the brothers and sisters around us that we know that you're literally sitting next to, that will cross the room. It can be in our home groups, in those formal kind of settings. The young adults, we're going to pray on Tuesday night together here. We'll pray for things for ourselves, and then we'll pray for the local community, the kingdom of God to come. Start a prayer group. We used to have one on Thursday morning. I can't run it in this season of life. If you want to run it, go for it. You've got a missionary on your fridge, pray for them. You want a missionary on your fridge, get one. Put it on your fridge, pray for them. 
And pray spontaneously. Pray with your Christian brothers and sisters. Don't just wait for the formal times. Be in partnership in prayer together. As we labour in prayer, there is immense value because we spur one another on. We do it together. And so, friends, as we remind ourselves that we're called to be mission-minded people and to labour in prayer, we remember what we're praying for God's glory. We're praying for people to come to find life in Jesus for now and into eternity. It is a worthy mission. And so we labour on with endurance and patience and determination for God to do his work to do his work in and through us and despite us. So friends, keep praying. Let's be mission-minded people together for God's glory. Let me pray. Father, it is one thing to talk about prayer, but it, it is exceptionally incredible that you invite us to pray. You invite us into a relationship with you and you say, call on the heavenly resources call on you to do your work. So God, we bring before you the people that are on our minds. And Father, we ask that you will unblind their heart, that they may see that you are the truth, that you are the loving God, that you are calling them to yourself to find life, to have it to the full, for now and into eternity. So Father, please bring people to yourself. Use us or don't use us, but we long to be your people. Let us sing live transformed through Jesus to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.